Chapter 9 2228 Hours EST 0348 Hours GMT Cambridge, Massachusetts Walter Brankman discovered later that the 1.2 megaton warhead of the Soviet ICBM, probably targeted on central Boston, had overshot its target by as many as 10 miles to airburst at 1,500 feet above the town of Quincy. Quincy was the birthplace of two former American presidents, John Adams and John Quincy Adams, a city in its own right, but for over half a century, a feeder commuter suburb of the Boston metropolitan area to its north, along the curve of Quincy Bay, where it merged into Boston Bay. Ninety-nine percent of its population, over 70,000 souls, died in the first second after the explosion. The few survivors who got down to their basements and cellars in time died in the next few seconds, burned and crushed in the ruins. Momentarily, the annihilating 50-million-degree bloom of the airburst consumed Weymouth to the south, its thermal pulse flashing across and firing the southern suburbs of the great city to the north like the blowtorch of the gods. The firestorm scoured the surface of the bay of all life for several miles out to sea before the tsunami shockwave of blast overpressure smashed into the southern suburbs and the port of Boston. The flash turned night to day eleven and a half nautical miles away in Cambridge as Walter Brankman bundled his complaining wife, Joan, through the basement door and followed her down the flight of steps into the concrete sanctuary beneath the old house. The room had been the kids' playground in the New England winters of their childhood. Latterly, it had become the family utility room. Washing machine, tumble dryer, a big Westinghouse larder fridge stood against one wall. Against another wall was a workbench with tools lying untidily on its top, a chair that Walter had been attempting to repair perched atop it amid wood scrapings. The old threadbare living room sofa they had replaced upstairs three years ago sat in the middle of the cold room. It was bitterly cold because they did not bother turning on the heating now the kids were gone. What was that? Joan asked as the lights flickered. Her husband did not reply as he calmly searched his toolbox for a torch. The lights flickered again, and then all was dark. Walter, the electromagnetic pulse of a big bomb, trips the nearest transformers. After that, the local power grid shorts out, her husband explained, gently, patiently. He switched on the torch, pointed it at Joan's feet, then towards the sofa. We ought to sit down and wait. Wait for what, Walter? The end of the world? What he actually said was, to see if the power comes back on, sweetheart. Together they settled on the sofa and drew the blankets they had snatched from the airing cupboard on the way down to the bottom of the house around themselves. Joan leaned against her husband. Are you as scared as I am, honey? I'm so scared I'm surprised I haven't evacuated my bowels. Nah, Walter Brinkman drawled. We've done what we can do, sweetheart. The rest is in God's hands. They were both Sunday Baptists. Neither of them were true believers. Their chapel, St. Mark's, had been the center of their social orbit for some years, the congregation largely comprised of couples like themselves, with kids in common, schools in common, jobs in the nearby city in common, with democratic politics in common, and so on. The house seemed to shudder, sway. The sound of breaking, falling glass on bare boards seemed deafening. For a moment they held their breath, expecting the whole building to crash down on top of them. I love you, Joe. Walter said. His wife snuggled closer. I've always loved you, Walt. Always and forever. 
always and forever, her husband repeated, kissing the top of her head.